Turn with me to John chapter 19 and verse 12. John chapter 19 and verse 12. Over the years, I've enjoyed watching uh, boxing contests. And uh, Muhammad Ali, Sweet P. Whitaker, Boom Boom Mancini, several of those are my, some of my favorites. And I especially like Evander Holyfield for heart. Uh, and uh, great, uh, great athletes. And uh, one of the things I've noticed, whether you're watching athletics or, or whatever area of life it may be, it could be uh, people that are great inventors or uh, people who are great organizers. You can see in the gifts that people have the imprint and the touch of God's work and God's hand upon their lives. But in no other case but Jesus Christ do you see perfection and holiness and goodness and wonderfulness. There is no one like Jesus. There's no mold that uh, even comes close to what Jesus is and what he has done. We need to understand that Jesus is good, that he is great, and that he is faithful so that we can put our trust in him. Now that goes for Christians, but that also goes for lost people. If you're going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and give your life to him, you need to understand who he is. And this scripture we're going to look at today, possibly better than any, shows who our Savior is. Because it reveals who he is when the chips are down. Who he is when things are hard and difficult. You know, I, we, we knew someone years ago, a family friend, that uh, she had a sharp tongue. I mean, she just let you know uh, what she thought. of you. It didn't take a whole lot to get her to speak. And, uh, but something happened. She had a procedure done, and she was no longer in pain. And she became this friendly, nice person. Why? Because the pain was gone. You see, pain tends to bring out the worst in us, right? Uh, my, my, my family notices with me, uh, I, I get asthma, and they'll say, do you have asthma? In other words, I'm acting like a jerk, and they know the reason why, right? And so uh, they'll ask me that question. Yes, I, I do. And so, um, but Jesus is here at the darkest hour of his life. He is suffering in the greatest way he's ever suffered. He's suffering physically on the cross. He's suffering spiritually as the wrath of God is poured out of him. He's suffering emotionally as the Father turns his back on him. And yet in the midst of it all, Jesus shines brightly, and he shows us why we can put our trust in him. And so, the title of my message is The Incomparable Jesus, and uh, I'm just going to read a portion of this text because it's a long text, but um, uh, we need to put our trust in Jesus because there's no one like him. All right, uh, chapter 19 and verse 12. Uh, From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, 
you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a palace called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to him, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It, is, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the, of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So the incomparable Jesus, what does God tell us so that we'll trust in Jesus? Well, first of all, he tells us about his impartial evaluation. His impartial evaluation. If you turn over to chapter 18, uh, in starting the trial before Pilate, Pilate asks in verse 29 of chapter 18, so he says, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And so uh, they're, they're frustrated with him. Probably they had planned this thing with Pilate. But now they're here, and Pilate's asking them the charge, and they don't really have a good charge to bring against him. Now, some of the other gospels share things that they bring up later on, but nothing uh, is anything worthy of the death penalty, and nothing that is evil. Uh, he claims to be the Son of God. They don't like it, but he is the Son of God. He plays, claims to be the King of the Jews, but he is the King of the Jews. And so they can find no fault with him. And so they get... Pilate, who is not a Jew and who has no interest in doing anything on behalf of a Jew. And they bring him to Jesus and after he looks at him and talks to him, 
In verse 38, he says, uh, verse 38 of chapter 18, he says, I find no grounds for charging him. Then look at chapter 19 and verse 4. Again, he says, I find no grounds for charging him. And then look at verse 6 of chapter 19. It says, he says yet again, I find no grounds for charging him. You say, well, then why did he give them over to be crucified? He gave them over because of political pressure. And he literally, the word that's used in the Greek is the same word that's used of Judas' betrayal. Everybody is betraying Jesus. Judas betrays him. The chief priests and leaders of the Jews betray him. And Pilate betrays him. But his evaluation of Jesus was that he was innocent. He could find no charge against him. I want to tell you something. There's still people to this day that are accusing Jesus. That are speaking evil of the gospel and of Christianity. But I want to tell you something. There is no fault in Jesus. Jesus challenged his enemies. One time he says, if you can find fault against me, tell me. Let it be known. They could find no fault. And then, of course, the father found no fault in him. Because what happened after his death? He raised him up from the dead. And put the stamp of approval upon Jesus' life. Our Savior, the Bible says, is was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. You can trust Jesus because he is the pure, spotless Lamb of God. The only one worthy to die for the sins of humanity. He was without spot or blemish. He was completely holy. And someone who is that good, who is that righteous, you can put your trust in him. Listen, I'm going to tell you, you, you have people in your family that you trust. You have trusted friends you can trust. But I'm going to tell you something. You and I are all human beings, and we all make mistakes, and we all fail from time to time. But I want to tell you, Jesus never fails. He is perfect and holy in every way. So God tells us about this. He tells us of his impartial evaluation at the hands of Pilate. To show us who he is. So the incomparable Jesus. What does God tell us? He tells us about his impartial evaluation. Secondly, he tells us about his selfless mission. He tells us about his selfless mission. Verse 32 of chapter 18 again. We're back to chapter 18. Look at verse 32. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Okay? So Jesus had predicted he was going to die, and he had predicted the way he was going to die. What was the way the Jewish people normally put people to death? They stoned them, right? That's what the law prescribed. But the Romans didn't do that. The Romans crucified. You would have to be lifted up on a tree. Jesus said the Son of Man will be lifted up. He predicted his death. Now, the Jewish people probably, their leadership had a different motivation for bringing them to Pilate. Probably to get themselves off the hook. If Pilate pronounced his death, they would not be held responsible by the Jewish people who loved Jesus. And so, they wanted Pilate to be the one who carried out the sentence. 
But all of this was done under the sovereignty of an almighty God. <clears throat> and their actions ended up fulfilling Jesus' predictions of the very way he would die. Jesus came on a selfless mission to die for the sins of humanity. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to this world to die. But he also came to set up a spiritual kingdom. Um, If you look in verse 36, he says, my kingdom, verse 36 of chapter 18, by the way, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. So that was, in, in, in other words, Jesus is agreeing with him. Yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came to bring a spiritual kingdom. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you surrender yourself to Jesus' lordship. You choose to follow him, and you receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus becomes your king, and you become the subject. It is a spiritual kingdom, but listen, it is a blessed kingdom. Because with that kingdom comes the abundant life, God's joy, and God's peace, God's direction in your life, and God's care for you. All of these things come under this, and this is why Jesus came. His was a selfless mission to die for sin, to bring in a spiritual kingdom, and then also to speak the truth. Look at, uh, look at verse 37 of John 18. It says, you say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Jesus spoke the truth. He spoke the truth when it was popular and when it wasn't. That's one of the reasons they hated him so much, because he spoke the truth. And Jesus, through the truth, set people free. People were set free from sin. They were set free from Satan. They were given a new life and a new heart and a new direction in their life. All of this, Jesus came to do. He lived a life in obscurity in a little place called Palestine, Israel. And he spoke the truth and he died on behalf of men. This was his selfless mission. If I'd been Jesus and I'd come from heaven, I probably would have had an entourage or something like that. But Jesus didn't. He came to be born and humbly in a stable. And Jesus had a humble mission in in a little place called Israel. And he largely lived under the radar of most people on the face of the earth. But Jesus had a profound mission. And his selfless mission has literally changed the world. Jesus is is one who gives of himself. I came into the world to save sinners, Jesus said. So uh, God tells us about his selfless mission, so we'll trust it. When you see Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of people. Some people talk about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa did a lot of wonderful things when she was here. You might think of, of somebody like Billy Graham who won so many people to faith in Christ and We look at these folks and we admire these people. But I want to tell you, there's no one like Jesus in his selfless mission. He cries out for us to trust him. 
Trust me as I lay myself down for you. What a, what a Savior we have. So, the incomparable Jesus, what does God tell us so we'll trust him? He tells us about his impartial evaluation, his selfless mission. Thirdly, his hateful enemies. His hateful enemies. Years ago, before the time of Jesus, Solomon wrote, The wicked hate the righteous. Did you know that just because somebody's hated doesn't mean they're a bad person? Sometimes it means they're a good person. <laughs> the wicked hate the righteous. That's found in Proverbs. I want to tell you something. Jesus was the most righteous of all men. So Jesus was also the most hated of all men. His hateful enemies show us who Jesus is. Listen, I'm going to tell you, nobody was hated because, like Jesus because Jesus was righteous like no one else. His hateful enemies reveal to us who he is. Uh, one, one scripture Jesus talks about uh, the fact that many of the Jewish leaders, he says, listen, you venerate the tombs of the prophets, but your ancestors are the one who killed the prophets. The, who, of, who of them did you not reject? Who of them did you not kill? Did you not reject? Um, and and he's, he's telling them, look, there's this pattern that's going on. You reject God's righteous messengers. And now here's Jesus, the righteous messenger. And they're following suit. They're following along in the hatred that has continued from times past, except now it is a fever pitch. Verse 39 of, of chapter 18, or look at a little, little bit into uh, verse 38. It says, I find no grounds for charging him, Pilate says. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted about, not this man, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. Um, the word means thief, but it is used a lot of times in the context of uh, somebody who, who uh, robs and is, is something along the lines of a terrorist. Some translations even translate it that way. This guy was a bad guy, Barabbas. And yet, so great was their hatred for Jesus, whom Pilate could find no charge against, that they say, release the terrorist so that our hatred against Jesus can be fulfilled. That's pretty serious hatred right there. Uh, if you look in uh, chapter 19, verse 21 and 22, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. They don't even want him to get any credit at all. They cannot stand Jesus. And so they cry out. Pilate even has him beaten to try to, 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 to appease the crowd. And when they see Jesus, he says, behold your king. He's kind of poking fun at them. Behold your king. Uh, they say, crucify him. Crucify him. There's no pity. There's no mercy. They're not moved by the fact that Jesus is suffering. Crucify him. Their hatred was so great against Jesus that nothing less 
then his death would satisfy them. And then as he died, they ridiculed him and mocked him and enjoyed the scene. Why this great hatred? Because Jesus was righteous and they were wicked. Jesus had said, you're, the, you're those who, who spoil widows' houses. You're whitewashed tombs. You're a brood of vipers. And uh, they, they were going around trying to destroy anyone who stood in their way. And now they're coming for Jesus because he was righteous. So uh, his hateful enemies, some, you can tell a lot sometimes about who your enemies are. Uh, if you're a good, righteous person, sometimes people who are wicked won't like you very much. And that is a statement of righteousness for you. Uh, so anyway, uh, the incomparable Jesus, what does God show us though that we'll trust him? He, show, he tells us about his impartial evaluation, his selfless mission, his hateful enemies. Next, his tender compassion. I love this. Uh, if you look in, in chapter 19 and verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. His tender compassion. I mentioned that family friend uh, that we had. And, uh, and, and, you know, when you're hurting, when you're suffering, you tend to lash out at others, don't you? Not Jesus. Jesus was filled with tender compassion. Jesus was thinking of others, even on the cross. He sees his mother and he realizes, I'm not going to be here. Uh, he says, John. Here's your mother, Mary. Here's your son. <laughs> he was making provision for his mom. And uh, what, a, what an amazing thing, the tender heart of Jesus. He didn't stop there. One of the other gospels tells us he is witnessing to a thief. Hanging there on the cross. He's doing ministry. And the thief is observing what's happened to him, and, and he begins, but he's cursing. Both thieves are cursing him at the beginning. But one thief begins to see how he's responding and hear his words, and, and he says, remember me in your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus was all about Showing compassion to others. Listen, he still does it today. Praise God, Jesus saves sinners. I'm not worthy to be saved, and neither are you. But by God's grace, through the blood of Jesus Christ, my sins have been buried in the sea of forgetfulness. Separated as far as the east is from the west. They, God took him out of the middle. It, it's no longer a barrier between me and God. Took it out of the middle and nailed it to his cross. Yes, I know Pilate put the king of the Jews. But God put my charge and your charge on Jesus' cross. And he bore it for us. The tender compassion of Jesus. There's never a sinner that came with a genuine heart for forgiveness that Jesus didn't show mercy to. <laughs> That's the tender heart.
of our Savior. Why should you trust him? He has tender compassion even in this circumstance. So the incomparable Jesus, what does God tell us so we'll trust him? God tells us about his impartial evaluation, his selfless mission, his hateful enemies, his tender compassion, and his fulfilled prophecies. His fulfilled prophecies. Verse 28, that the scripture might be fulfilled. If you were there and you were observing Jesus hanging on the cross, as many, I'm sure, did as they walked past, the scripture tells us that many of them did. Some of them shook their heads and some of them uh, reviled him and, and, and mocked him. You would think this is just another crucifixion. Right? If you weren't paying close attention, you would just look at this and you'd say, here's a criminal. Here's somebody dying because they have somehow upset the Roman government. But you would be completely mistaken. Jesus wasn't there because of the Roman government. Even though Pilate gave him over, Pilate had been given that authority <laughs> by God himself. It was the purpose of God that Jesus would go to the cross to take care of the problem of your sin and mine. God so delighted in his son and the, and the way of salvation that he predicted it even from the beginning. He talked about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Jesus was coming. But in these prophecies. Let me, just, let me just go through a few of them. I don't have time to talk about them in detail, but I'm going to go through them. Uh, verse 24, of chap, these are all in chapter 19. Uh, it says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. 18. Um, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Great Passover image there. Um, on a hyssop branch or hyssop uh, uh, rod. And they held it up to his mouth. That's Psalm 69, verses 17 through 21. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What, what was finished? The work that God had planned. Found in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12, where he, was, he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. This is a fulfillment of Numbers 9, 12 about the sacrificial victim not having bones broken. Uh, verse, Psalm 34, uh, verses 19 and 20, not one of his bones shall be broken. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 16, now I think this is uh, uh, the primary reference here with the hyssop uh, uh, mentioned as well, of the Passover lamb. You see, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was the picture of of the eternal salvation that Jesus would bring. And then look at verse 37. Another scripture says they will look on the one they pierced. 
Zechariah 12.10. Now, this is just a handful of prophecies that John mentions here. But it shows that Jesus' death on the cross was no accident. He didn't go there because of the Romans or even the Jewish leadership. He went there ultimately because God had a plan. And the prophecies show that Jesus was God's plan. Um, Josh McDowell has a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The new evidence that demands a verdict is out. And, and he, he, in that book, he talks about the fact that there were 29 prophecies that are fulfilled in one 24-hour period when Jesus died. They're from different individuals and different times of history and different books of the Bible, all fulfilled in one 24-hour history. Some people have said, well, Jesus just intentionally filled these prophecies and, uh, you know, anybody could do that. No. Matter of fact, Josh McDowell takes eight prophecies about Jesus that could only, I mean, you have no control of them. They could only be fulfilled by supernatural providence. And he had a mathematician uh, do some, some evaluating of this. And he said the odds that these eight prophecies would be fulfilled in Jesus are 1 to 10 to the 17th power. One, one with 17 zeros behind it to 1. And uh, he describes it, he says you could fill the state of Texas full two feet deep with silver dollars and paint one of them, fly over it in a helicopter and drop it out somewhere over the state of Texas. Blindfold yourself and walk into the state of Texas and the odds of you picking up that silver dollar the first time are the odds that these eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one individual in history. After all, you can't control where you're born, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was the prophecy. You can't control what others do to you as we see here in this prophecy about the drink that they gave to Jesus on the cross, the fact that the Roman soldier didn't break his legs, all of these things. All of this is a testament of who Jesus is. God is saying, trust him. I'm showing you his fulfilled prophecy to show you that you can put your trust in Jesus. The incomparable Jesus What does God tell us so we'll trust him? He tells us of his impartial evaluation, his selfless mission, his hateful enemies, his tender compassion, and his fulfilled prophecies. Listen, what will you do with Jesus? God wants you to trust him. Christian, are you trusting him? Listen, there's no one you can trust with your life better than you can trust Jesus with it. (laughs) He knows you perfectly. He loves you completely. He has a plan for your life. Put your trust in him in the midst of your circumstances and trouble. If you don't know Jesus today, can I tell you something? There's no greater person you can put your trust in than Jesus Christ. And Jesus in his death on the cross was paying for your sin and mine, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Why? So that we could be forgiven. God's wrath and God's justice could be satisfied so that we could have a relationship with God and go to heaven when we die. Jesus made it possible. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. Satisfied the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. And God says, it's called justification. God credits his righteousness to us. 
Everything we have and everything we are are about a man whose name is Jesus Christ. Without him, there is no salvation. With him, there is eternal life. And all the blessings of this life with him and of the next life where there will be no sin, only joy, and a perfect situation forever and ever. Are you trusting him? There's no one like him. There's no one better that you can trust. Put your trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we we thank you for showing us why we can trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for telling us of these different things about his crucifixion and about the fulfilled prophecy. Lord, help us trust you. In our day-to-day lives, God, give us your, fill us with your spirit.